Let me welcome all of you to the second of the lectures in this series by this year's Philippe Roman professor here at LSE, Professor Matthew Connolly from uh, Columbia University. And it's a great pleasure to have you back, Matthew, for the second lecture. Now, the purpose of these lectures is to look at the development of world thinking, but particularly U.S. thinking, about official secrecy, the reactions to uh, official secrecy, to uh, intelligence gathering operations, and to try to catch the trajectory of how these have developed over time. Now, last time we heard about the original debates on the U.S. side with regard to uh, ideas about secrecy, but also ideas about openness, um, about public access to information. And most of the development that we've seen on this, most of what we've seen that has a direct bearing on our own day and age, come out of the 20th century. I think this is what Matthew is going to uh, deal with in, in this lecture. How did the experience on the U.S. side of war and conflict in the early and middle part of the 20th century impact on concepts of secrecy and openness. What kind of pressure does states, does governments come under when they are confronted with uh, foreign affairs developments that are very difficult for them to control or even have an influence over? And first and foremost, when you try to sum this up, when you try to develop a policy based on it, how do you do that in a world that is becoming increasingly uncertain? But then also on the other hand, perhaps even more importantly, how does the demands with regard to secrecy, uh, with regard to intelligence gathering, coexist with demands for openness, public debate, for politics in an open society? I think those are the big challenges of the middle part of the 20th century. So we're looking forward to hearing uh, what Matt has to say on this in his, in his lecture today. Um, me. Um, mentioned that the, uh, for those of you who tweet, that the hashtag for tonight is LSE Connolly. Of course, that's not the password, by the way. That's the hashtag. <laughs> LSE Mine's Connolly. much easier than that. Um, and then, of course, we will have a question and answer session uh, after Matthew has spoken today. Let me encourage you to try your, to have your questions ready. I promised that I'll try to take as many questions as possible for this <coughs> session. I know that in the last, uh, after the last lecture, a number you weren't able to ask questions. Have them well prepared, have them short and sweet, and then we'll have a discussion after Matthew has concluded his lecture. Matt, it's great to have you back here. Welcome, welcome back for the second lecture. Thank you so much. Thank you, Arnie. Um, thank you all. Thank you all for coming. Um, thank you, Manny Rahman. Uh, and um, I want to uh, talk to you tonight um, about a slightly different topic than the one I uh, originally had in mind when I came up with the title, uh, Open Government uh, in the Age of Total War. Um, because I, I think that another way of thinking about this, maybe a better way, um, as you'll be seeing in, in, the, in due course, is that uh, this is a period um, in which... Um, this ideal of open government in the United States, the ideal that I described in my last lecture, enters into this age of total war and enters it completely unprepared. Um, and I'm going to describe the, the reaction uh, that provoked, a rather extreme uh, reaction, that really did in many ways uh, anticipate um, 
some much more recent developments um, in the age that we live in now, the age of surveillance. Um, but let me start uh, in 1916. I want to start um, on an evening in July 1916, July 30th, when there was a, a massive uh, explosion in New York Harbor. <clears throat> and this was an explosion that, uh, as you can see from the, the front page of the Times the next day, uh, was one that really shook uh, the entire uh, metropolitan area. In fact, it was heard you know, 90 miles away. In fact, it was even heard as far as, as Maryland, which is much further than that. Um, and they heard it all the way in Maryland because uh, in this evening, in the middle of the night, uh, 2,000 tons of munitions had exploded. That's two kilotons. And this blast uh, was one that uh, shattered windows all across uh, southern Manhattan. Um, it killed several people, um, and it woke up many more people all around the region. Um, and because of where it happened um, in this island, Black Tom Island, which is uh, just off uh, New Jersey, and in fact in between New Jersey and um, where the Statue of Liberty is on Liberty Island, the Statue of Liberty itself was embedded with shrapnel. Um, and the shrapnel is still there. And in fact, uh, to this day, you can't climb up to the torch of the Statue of Liberty because of some of the damage that was sustained that night. And the secondary explosions you know, after that initial uh, detonation continued for hours afterwards. And so New York Harbor was just, just a spectacle of uh, exploding shells and uh, soaring across uh, the water. And the munitions uh, that had detonated had actually been intended for delivery to the British and French armies on the Western Front. This was, after all, in the, in the middle of the First World War. And immediately, it was suspected that it had been sabotage. Uh, it had been German sabotage. And it was quite plausible, because by this point, uh, Germany had already uh, launched, through a network of spies and saboteurs across the eastern seaboard, had already launched dozens of attacks against uh, ships and factories that had been supplying the Allied powers. But it was never proven. To this day, we still don't know um, whether it might have been an accident or whether indeed it was uh, sabotage. Even so, when, when the U.S. entered the war, um, this, this night continued to, to haunt uh, Americans. And in a sense, it gave them a, a taste, a premonition, if you will, of, of total war and what that could be like. Um, now, of course, what happened in New York <clears throat> that night was really nothing compared to what was happening, what had been happening all across Europe and for some years already. Um, but still, it was, uh, for Americans, a, a wake-up, um, one in which um, they began to imagine what it was like if a whole society was targeted, targeted through subversion, through blockade, and perhaps even uh, through bombing. And they began to experience total mobilization. Um, mobilization through conscription, which was introduced in that war, um, through a war economy, and even through a war of ideas. So total war um, was something that was not entirely new to the United States. I mean, the Civil War was in many ways comparable you know, in the scale of destruction and the extent of mobilization. But it was in the course of the First World War and still more uh, during the Second World War, that Americans discovered how a total war could erase the normal boundary, uh, even between their own sense of self, their own privacy, their private thoughts, um, and their private utterances, 
and what it was that the state deemed to be the state's property, to be state secrets. Because this was a war in which everyone, in effect, was asked uh, to police themselves. Right? So the Statue of Liberty you know, figured in uh, propaganda you know, to uh, inspire people to buy war bonds, to enlist in the Navy, you know, to build these great fleets that would roam the world. Um, but there were other themes uh, in this war you know, beyond liberty, um, themes of danger and new kinds of danger. As in this poster, for instance, uh, one quite like uh, posters that had already been uh, produced in Great Britain. Um, others that would be produced, many more of them in the course of the Second World War. Posters that instructed citizens to know, you know that any time, in any place, spies might be listening. And the things that they said you know, could mean national peril. So private citizens were made to understand that in total war, merely gossiping with a neighbor or voicing doubts about the war could endanger the nation, could imperil um, the, the national community. And all of this implied a massive increase in the scope of secrecy, secrecy of every kind, not merely the secrets that states protected, but the secrets that everyone was expected to keep from one another. Again, all in the name of national security. And when I first um, spoke here about the rise and fall of official secrecy, the theme of these lectures, I asked the question, and it was really a rhetorical question. Nobody jumped up to answer it because uh, I was suggesting that the answer was obvious. I asked this question, you know, if everything is secret, then can anything be secret? And I thought the answer was obvious. More obvious, perhaps, every time there's another massive leak, you know, when another one of the millions of Americans who has access to classified information decides to release some of that information, sometimes lots of that information. But the more you think of it, the more you think of it in this historical context, in particular periods like this time of total war, I think you have to come to the conclusion that, in fact, it depends on the context, that there are certain exceptional circumstances when the answer may be yes, because of the exceptional power exercised by a sovereign state, that exceptional power they can exercise only in a time of total war and total mobilization. Now, it's then that the state can make everything that is potentially useful to the enemy a state secret. And that, after all, can be anything at all, because it's up to the state to decide. And to decide these things in secret. So in these conditions, the state strives to know all, to see all, but citizens are only allowed to know what they need to know, what the state decides they should know. And they're allowed to say even less. But this kind of unaccountable power, it really presumes that the state knows what it knows, that it can deliberate in secrecy, and punish those who fail to protect information. And for the first hundred years of its existence, this was not typically the case in the United States. Now instead, as I described uh, last time, um, the American Republic for its first century really represented a radically different example to the rest of the world, a radical kind of transparency. Now as I emphasized then, 
Um, the U.S. government did try to keep secrets. In fact, you know, the Constitutional Convention itself was held in secrecy. The U.S. was initially led by a group of men who were well-practiced in concealment. Um, you know, there's a, a show in the United States now, uh, which is kind of a silly show. It's called Sleepy Hollow, uh, but it, it's pretty hilarious uh, because it's all about conspiracies and concealment. But they actually do take some facts from real life. The fact, for instance, that Washington wrote in code. He used invisible ink. So these revolutionaries really did um, practice um, the art of spycraft. They had a trade and tradecraft of their own. But the paradox here is that the United States was a conspiracy dedicated to the cause of accountable government, even if accountability sometimes amounted to sharing the spoils, whether spoils from land grabs or from patronage schemes. Now, as other states extended surveillance powers and adopted official secrets laws, the U.S. went in a different direction. The U.S. remained a relatively weak and divided state, one that was incapable or unwilling to conceal its inner workings, and one that made information and communication unusually cheap. And moreover, the American people armed themselves, as James Madison urged that they should do. They armed themselves through public education, through newspapers, and through a deep and abiding suspicion of state power. Now today we're going to see how it is that they could be disarmed. We're going to see how many became willing auxiliaries of the surveillance state. And the period of the First and Second World Wars, systems of communication became systems of surveillance. Newspapers, schools, and universities became sites of indoctrination and producers of propaganda. A weak government that was highly permeable and corruptible in the course of the 19th century became, through progressive reform, progressively more professional and more capable. And where once the United States went to war for more or less transparent motives, in some cases naked greed, now it claimed to serve the most high-minded ideals, to make the world safe for democracy, or even to end war itself. And these ideals justified far more extreme assertions of state power and unaccountable power than ever before. Now, this included large-scale surveillance of the mail, of telephones, and telegraph, rounding up, imprisoning, and exiling citizens, and with the Manhattan Project, the creation of secret communities and secret forms of knowledge. And with the Atomic Energy Act of 1946, the government gained the power to punish citizens merely for speculating about nuclear power and nuclear weapons. And as we shall see, the atomic bomb and the ensuing Cold War created a culture of secrecy, such that many of the practices that seemed exceptional and limited to a period of total war became permanent conditions. Now, normally, and in the course of this lecture, I'm going to be talking about the more conventional kinds of official secrets, that is, the secrets that aren't born secret, uh, like knowledge of nuclear weapons after the Atomic Energy Act. I'll be talking about the no more normal kinds of information that governments seek to, to conceal. The things that governments know that no one else knows or should know, 
and the things that a government can learn about other institutions or individuals without their knowledge. And this knowledge, like any knowledge, is useless if it cannot be stored safely, if it cannot be retrieved when needed, and if it cannot be securely communicated. Information management and communication security, as we'll see, these, even more than weapons and war plans, these are the core technologies of official secrecy. And secret intelligence depends as much on centralized record keeping as spies and surveillance. So when, to begin with, the United States created the first intelligence agency in 1882, the Office of Naval Intelligence, it began with a library. It began with the oldest library in the federal government, that is the Department of Navy Library. And for a time, the Office of Naval Intelligence consisted of that one library. It was a very good library, but there were only a handful of attaches abroad uh, to feed it with new information, and sometimes secret information. As late as 1897, there were just five officers in the Office of Naval Intelligence. And the Army's intelligence section was even weaker. And even these Army attaches were largely ignored by the Army. So today, like last time, I'm going to be talking quite a lot about the State Department. Because the State Department in this period remained the main keeper and communicator of whatever secrets the US possessed about itself and the rest of the world. This was a period, after all, after all before um, there were national archives in the United States. The State Department was the department designated as responsible for maintaining the government's institutional memory, including the archives of the War and Navy Departments. And hundreds of US diplomatic and consular posts by the second half of the 19th century, this is what constituted America's intelligence network. Now, even in 1882, the State Department already processed an estimated 50,000 communications a year. So how is it that the State Department communicated in a secure fashion, such that other governments couldn't intercept these communications and to discover what information the US was gathering around the world? Now, for centuries already, other states encoded their communications and they employed trusted couriers to deliver them in diplomatic pouches that were inviolate, or at least were meant to be inviolate. But the State Department didn't follow these traditions. Instead, the State Department established uh, a system of dispatch agents, dispatch agents who didn't travel on these ships across the Atlantic, uh, to retrieve and return communications between the State Department and foreign embassies and consulates. Instead, these dispatch agents simply deliver those communications to the captains of various ships, like the Atlantic or the Baltic, steamships, where in many cases it was the purser who would, took, would take possession of these purses, these diplomatic pouches, and keep them in the storeroom, keep them locked away uh, during the voyage. Or at least that was the idea. Now, this was the only security that was provided for the vast majority of these 50,000 communications uh, that were being processed uh, even in 1882. Um, because if you look at how many of these communications were encrypted in the fashion that European powers encrypted communications, you can see that it was only in the period of the early republic 
that the U.S. encrypted even a few thousand lines of code each year. So this chart shows you uh, the number of lines of uh, encrypted communications delivered by American legations back to uh, the State Department in Washington. And what it also shows you is uh, the countries um, where American legations felt it was particularly necessary uh, to encrypt their communications. And so you see you know, some of the usual suspects, uh, France and Great Britain, um, France especially was known you know, for its black chamber, its ability to uh, decode communications. And so if um, these diplomatic pouches were intercepted, if somebody picked the lock, if they opened them up to try to read what was inside, uh, this was meant to provide the ultimate protection. But as you can see, in the course of the 19th century, the State Department encrypted fewer and fewer of its communications. And if you think of it relative to the growth in the number of these communications, to the extent we can count these things. It was a smaller and smaller proportion of State Department communications that were protected against foreign powers. Now, there are good reasons not to encode your communications. I'm sure many of you uh, do not encode um, your own email. And if you don't do it, it's probably because you find it to be a hassle. And it is a hassle. Uh, there's a lot of hilarious correspondence back and forth between uh, Jefferson and other American presidents with their foreign um, legations uh, where they fumble around with different coding systems and oftentimes only succeed in confusing themselves. It takes time to encode and decode messages. There are often errors in transmission. And these kinds of errors, these kinds of um, mistakes, can actually impede the whole purpose of diplomatic communications, that is to communicate information. So the trick is to devise a code that is both easy to use and hard to crack. And the same message must never be communicated, both in its encrypted form and in clear text. Since, after all, anyone who has access to both versions can then break the code. And since no code can remain safe forever, these codes have to evolve and change. Now, knowledge of these facts uh, was not lacking in the early American Republic. <clears throat> and in fact, um, it was President uh, Jefferson himself who devised um, a system for encrypting communications that was at least a century ahead of its time, that in many ways anticipated uh, the kinds of devices that came to be used in the middle of the 20th century, such as the Enigma machine. Um, this was a, uh, a device in which you could achieve um, almost total security uh, from any known technology or technique of code breaking at the time. This combination of spindles allowed you to create um, a number of variations that amounted to the number 372 with 39 zeros following it. So with this kind of device, the United States could have um, made its communications completely secure for the entire course of the 19th century. But this was the exception that proved the rule. This, the only really fundamental and important American contribution uh, to encryption in the course of the 19th century, was one that Jefferson filed away and then forgot. It was never used. And it was only rediscovered again in 1922, when people began to appreciate more than uh, the leaders of the early republic did, the value of secure communications. 
Now instead, in the course of the 19th century, the U.S. used a cipher code uh, devised by James Monroe. James Monroe, who represented the U.S. Uh, in Paris in 1803 when negotiating the Louisiana Purchase. And there was nothing inherently, um, inherently wrong with this code. Um, so like many codes of its time, uh, it was one in which uh, there would be a numerical code equivalent to a word or word fragment. Um, and you would then have to look up in the code book. Uh, they might have 1,700 or uh, 2,700 different uh, numerical figures. You would have to look up what those numbers were equivalent to. So there was nothing inherently wrong with this code. Um, the only thing really wrong with it um, was that they continued using it for decades. Um, so this, you may recall from um, the period of uh, the early republic, was one of the more famous encoded messages. This is the one revealing how um, the government of uh, revolutionary France was demanding bribes just to negotiate uh, with American representatives. The XYZ affair, because the, the names of these French gentlemen were obscured uh, by the initials X, Y, and Z. And this was how they encoded um, the message. Uh, and the answer that the Americans gave to them about how they would know not give them even a sixpence. Um, this was the same code that was being used many, many decades later. Um, this was the same uh, code that the United States uh, tried to use in one of <clears throat> the more famous messages of the latter part of the 19th century. Um, this was a period in which the United States began to send its messages not by the dispatch system, but instead by using the telegraph. And to begin with, they had to use a telegraph that had been created by a private company, uh, the one in which Britain had a controlling interest. Um, it was a private company that offered the American Secretary of State, uh, Seward, the ability to communicate with the American legations abroad and to do it with um, uh, such rapidity um, that the United States would never go back um, to this older system of relying on steamships and dispatch agents. The U.S. had to depend on this private company because it had no uh, national telegraph company of its own. The U.S. was the only country among the leading powers that did not have its own national telegraph service. It trusted instead to the private sector, to the profit motive, uh, to secure its communications abroad. And the incentive, the profit incentive, was quite powerful. So one reason why companies went to the expense you know, of building the first transatlantic cable, uh, first in 1858 and then again in 1866, was because they could charge enormous sums to deliver these messages, whether from the State Department or from Wall Street, Wall Street financiers. At the time, they could charge $10 a word. But without any federal regulation of any kind, any company, uh, could lay submarine cables uh, across the Atlantic and have them land on American shores. Now, Seward finally decided that if he was to use uh, this means of communication, that the State Department should go back you know, to using the code, using the same code um, that Monroe had devised many decades earlier. He decided to send a message to Paris. Uh, this was in 1866, immediately following the American Civil War. Uh, demanding that France evacuate the troops that had occupied Mexico City. Now, they used the Monroe Code because it was the only one that they had, even though the British had cracked this code decades earlier. 
In fact, the British had been reading this code um, over the period of, of many years, up until the point that the U.S. stopped encoding its transmissions, that is in 1848. And it had been so long since the U.S. encoded any communications of any kind that the British had lost the key. But Seward did everyone a favor. He decided that having sent this encrypted communication to Paris, he would have it published in the American newspapers the next day. Now, anyone then who had access to this encrypted communication, that is the British, the French, perhaps even the Canadians, anyone who now had access to that uh, encrypted telegram and now had a newspaper would be able to break the American diplomatic code, the same code they'd been using for 63 years. Now, Seward did not show any particular concern. He was actually more concerned about the bill. Because as it turns out, um, the telegraph company charged double for encoded communications. And because this code was, all trans was transmitted entirely uh, in numbers, each one of these numbers had to be spelled out. So altogether, the bill came to almost $20,000. This was more than three times Seward's annual salary. And this debt remained unpaid for years. Why? Because Seward said, and so did his successors, that the State Department couldn't pay it. They didn't have the money. The company finally had to go to court to enforce its claim. Uh, this was you know, the kind of impression the United States made on the world you know, in the course of the, um, the middle part of the 19th century about how much it valued its own communications, how much it cared about keeping those communications secured, and whether it even had the capacity to pay its bills when using new technologies like the telegraph. Now, it wasn't until a decade later um, that a State Department official devised a new and more secure code. This official, John Haswell, was also the department's first director of indexes and archives. And after many hours trying to decode messages and many more hours trying to find lost files, Haswell understood the need to create systems both for securing communications and for storing information. Haswell was the first to create a subject file in the State Department's central office files. He was also the first to create a cross-reference card index. Now, he was the first to develop a relatively modern and efficient State Department code. But this code was as much intended to reduce the cost of telegrams as it was to uh, secure communications. And the key flaw uh, was that it consisted of a single code book. One page of it is uh, what you're looking at right now. And every one of these code books uh, came with a receipt so that whoever took possession of this code book would have to sign for it and ensure that it would remain uh, under lock and key the whole time. Why? Because anyone who gained hold of one of these code books would be able to read all of American diplomatic communications around the world. And they'd be able to read them over many years because the State Department did not devise new codes. Instead, they continued using the same code for decades. In 1905, just five years after the introduction of a new and supposedly more secure code, the so-called Blue Code, the U.S. Embassy in St. Petersburg reported that the code book had already been stolen. And two years later, another copy went missing in Bucharest, and it was put on the open market right, for any government to purchase. 
Uh, James Thurber, uh, the American humorist, um, spent time in the State Department as a code clerk, and he joked about how uh, even in the course of World War I, the United States was still using this code that was notorious you know, for being completely insecure. And there was a joke about how, at that point, the State Department had seven copies of the code book on file. Uh, one of them was neatly gift-wrapped. Why? Because it had been wrapped up by the Japanese embassy, who had kindly returned the code book uh, to the State Department, either, Thurber thought, because they no longer had any use for it, or perhaps because they had another copy on file. So American representatives abroad were laughed at uh, because of the insecurity of American diplomatic communications. In 1915, for instance, the Ottoman Minister of the Interior uh, reportedly enjoyed kidding the American ambassador about the, quote, more or less confidential telegrams that he'd been receiving from Washington. Now, a year later, the same code was still being used in Vienna, even though Austria-Hungary was known as having one of the best black chambers in the world. Even Woodrow Wilson, the president, and his main advisor used the same code to secure, supposedly secure their communications. Wilson personally spent long hours encoding and decoding the messages to Colonel House uh, in his negotiations to try to end the First World War, never seeming to realize, uh, because nobody told him, uh, that the code was being read all over the world. So Wilson cared about keeping his communication secret. He just didn't know how to do it. And apparently there was no one to advise him. And finally, uh, a clerk, State Department clerk, uh, who was detailed to the White House, because the White House and the State Department shared the same telegraph line, decided that he would take a crack at it. And he found that he was able to break the code in two hours. Now, this wasn't just anyone. This was Herbert Yardley, and Yardley would go on uh, to become one of the giants of American cryptography when the United States finally decided uh, to mount an effort in cryptography. Um, but for some time, you know, this was the state of American communications. This core technology of state secrecy was an open joke as far as the United States was concerned. And the U.S. You know, still didn't even have any system for designating what kinds of information was secure, whether cryptography or anything else. After all, how else would a lowly clerk feel that he had the right to read the president's own encrypted communications? It's because nobody told him he couldn't. There was no law and there was no system to deny him the ability to do that or punish him once he did. Now, when it comes to classification markings, you know, the way in which people have stamped documents secret or top secret, people have been doing this in the United States since the time of Washington. U.S. officials had long been writing things like, you know, confidential or personal and confidential, much as many of us do, you know, on our communications. But these terms for them, like for us, they really had a common sense meaning. Unlike in other countries, these classification markings didn't have any basis in official policy. Now compare that to what was happening in, the, in Great Britain, what had been happening for many decades already. Starting in the Crimean War, in the middle part of the 19th century, the British Army had begun creating a formal system of secret markings. Why? Because the industrialization of warfare, the increasingly um, decisive role of technology in war, these had placed a premium 
on securing communications even in peacetime, and securing information even when it wasn't being communicated. And in the, the UK, all of the elements of a classification system were in place uh, by the end of the 19th century. By 1894, uh, when the British Army had finally um, finalized its system for classification markings. Now, what does it take you know, to have a whole system for keeping information secure? Now, to begin with, you have to designate what kinds of information need to be protected. So to begin with, in the middle part of the 19th century, uh, by the 1870s, certainly, things like the fish torpedo uh, constituted high technology that had potentially disrupted potential uh, if they could uh, blow up double-hulled warships. Right? So certain kinds of military and naval technology early on were understood as requiring uh, special protection. But you had to make that explicit. Similarly, with uh, fortifications, with war plans, all of these things had to be enumerated and explained, even to the lowly clerk, in terms of what actually required close protection. There also had to be a limited set of markings, right? Um, so in the United States, eventually this came to be known as the Special Access Program. The fact that even with the security clearance at the secret or top secret level, only those who needed to know information were allowed to know that information, right? So. Uh, in other cases, you would see this as for your eyes only or with handling restrictions of various kinds to make certain that only certain people who had a reason to know that information would have access to that information. You also had to have a system and a uniform and consistent system of marking communications, right, whether secret or confidential or for official use only. Um, and rein in uh, the very human um, inclination to elaborate these kinds of markings, to decide that something is top, top secret, right? Because unless you control that kind of human inclination, that inherent inflationary pressure, very soon security classification markings lose their, their value. You also have to make sure that those classification markings are not open and obvious to everyone. You know, so when somebody is handling classified information and delivering that information, it's probably better if you put the document inside of an envelope and put that envelope inside of another envelope. So it's not obvious to everyone uh, that there's top secret information inside. And then finally, you have to set up a system of sanctions, punishment, to make clear what the consequences might be for failing to observe these kinds of rules. Uh, so in the case of Great Britain, beginning in the uh, latter part of the 19th century, officials with access to state secrets were required to sign uh, a statement that they understood the Official Secrets Act. Uh, this took on a kind of ritualistic quality because, after all, you didn't have to sign this statement uh, to be uh, prosecuted under the Official Secrets Act. It was just a way of making sure that you understood what could happen um, if you did uh, disobey these kinds of restrictions. Now, nothing like this existed in the United States in this period. Um, so last time I talked a bit about the foreign relations of the United States, how it is that the State Department, beginning in the Civil War, began publishing even confidential correspondence, uh, in some cases just months after it had been transmitted. And by the end of the 19th century, this was increasingly embarrassing uh, to American representatives abroad. Why? Because, you know, after all, you know, if you were trying to avert the Spanish-American Civil War, or the Spanish-American War, rather, in 1898, uh, and you mark your communications personal and confidential, you didn't necessarily expect those same communications to be communicated to the entire world to see a year or two later. 
Um, how is it you would expect people to confide in you? That was the complaint that more and more American diplomats were making about how it was becoming increasingly uh, um, embarrassing to them personally in their work as diplomats. But it wasn't just the State Department. You know, until 1899, um, the Navy, for instance, the U.S. Navy had a, quote, open door policy toward foreigners who made inquiries about American naval technology. Right? Other powers tended to exchange this information on a reciprocal basis, right? so one naval attaché to another. Instead, the U.S. Navy Department provided that information to anyone who asked for it, right? and this robbed their naval attachés of leverage they might have used to obtain this kind of information abroad. Now, in 1899, the Navy Department finally decided that, yes, the Office of Naval Intelligence should be the gatekeeper in controlling and protecting this kind of information. But it actually created even more confusion, because without any system of security markings and classification, it was unclear what kind of information could be shared and what kind of information had to be protected. So in this case, you have the, the chief of artillery. In this case, it's the War Department in 1907, complaining about how it is that the marking confidential has no definite meaning. He found, for instance, documents that contain the formula for whitewash being marked confidential, given the same kind of status, seemingly, um, as documents that pertain to the latest military technology or fortification design. Now, signals manuals, he said, were being handed over to enlisted men. Uh, that is the kind of manuals you would need to decrypt American communications. Harbor charts uh, that were protected or supposedly protected uh, were being stolen um, from fire stations. So by 1914, um, when World War I broke out, the United States still had little capacity to gather intelligence abroad. The U.S. Army, by this point, had a total of five attaches in the entire world. There was literally one, just one full-time officer in Washington who was there to evaluate their reports. The Office of Naval Intelligence was hardly any bigger. It had a total of eight officers and eight civilians. And the official history of the Office of Naval Intelligence estimates that they spent three-quarters of their time simply clipping articles from newspapers. So this was the, the state of the American intelligence community uh, at the beginning of uh, the First World War. Even when they had information that was confidential and worth protecting, they did not have a system for designating it as confidential. And the U.S. was also at a major disadvantage, remained at a bigger disadvantage in terms of protecting its own secrets. So it's not just that the U.S. didn't have secure means of protecting diplomatic or any other kinds of communications. It's also because the British controlled all of the submarine cables. In August 1914, one of the first things the Royal Navy did was to sever the telegraph uh, or submarine cables that connected Germany with the rest of the world. So from then on, the U.S. depended solely on Britain or British-controlled companies uh, to uh, communicate with American legations and embassies in other countries. That meant that American cables could be read uh, by the British or any other country where those communications transited. And that included the communications, yes, of Woodrow Wilson and his top advisor, Colonel House. So perhaps it's little surprise uh, that the German ambassador in Washington um, decided that um, on instructions for Berlin that he would immediately begin organizing espionage and sabotage operations in the United States. 
Once the United States became one of the main suppliers of munitions uh, to the British and French, who is it who would stop him? Uh, the ambassador was told that he would have to find new recruits because all the more experienced operatives were operating in countries like Britain and France and Russia, that is, countries that actually had real counterintelligence capabilities. Even so, even using fresh recruits, between the period of March and September of 1915, uh, German saboteurs managed to bomb 10 American factories, uh, and they also managed to uh, sink 13 ships uh, departing from U.S. ports with supplies uh, bound for the Allies. And it's for this reason that the American public you know, began to think of themselves uh, as being laughingstocks for the rest of the world. Uncle Sam walking around in blinders, being led by the German ambassador Bernstoff, with the hyphen club, uh, including the German uh, military attaché von Papen looking on. The hyphen club meaning those Americans who had hyphenated identities, especially the estimated 25% of the American uh, public that was of German descent. Now, soon enough, um, the American Secretary of State, Robert Lansing, uh, was warning that um, not just that there were extensive networks of saboteurs operating in the United States, but warning the president um, that the U.S. had almost no means of stopping them. They had lots of information, almost too much. The Department of State, he said, the War Department, and I'm quoting, the Navy Department, the United States Secret Service, the Department of Justice, doubtless other departments, commerce, post office, even interior, receive or could gather information as well. I'll just show you his words. Um, they receive or could gather information as well. But it's only by piecing together information from a number of sources that any practical lead can be obtained. A single office where all this information must be instantly transmitted without red tape is absolutely necessary to an effective organization. Now, Lansing was just underscoring uh, what many before him knew, the people who set up the Office of Naval Intelligence, that State Department official, Haswell, who set up the central office files at the State Department. That is, they understood it wasn't enough to have information. You had to have means of storing that information of organizing that information, of putting that information together and using it. And that is exactly what the United States was lacking. Now, Wilson himself um, confessed that he was completely shocked and surprised as to what was going on in the United States. And here's what he said, and said this publicly. He said, a little while ago, such a thing would have seemed incredible. Because it was incredible, we made no preparation for it. We would have been almost ashamed to prepare for it, as if we were suspicious of ourselves, our own comrades and neighbors. But the ugly and incredible thing has actually come about, and we are without adequate federal laws to deal with it. Such creatures of passion, disloyalty, and anarchy must be crushed out. They are not many, but they are infinitely malignant, and the hand of our power should close over them at once. They have formed plots to destroy property. They have entered into conspiracies against the neutrality of the government. They have sought to pry into every confidential transaction of the government in order to serve interests alien to our own. It is possible to deal with these things very effectually. I need not suggest the terms in which they may be dealt with. Now, it's not surprising, I guess, um, as much as Wilson was surprised, it's not surprising that he was shocked when you consider that the president didn't have any trusted or knowledgeable source to advise him on such matters. So his reaction was all the more extreme. 
as you can begin to sense from this kind of language. All the more extreme when he learned about these incredible, to him anyway, incredible actions of the German government. Perhaps even more incredible, even now it seems incredible, was how in 1917, after deciding to launch unrestricted U-boat warfare uh, against uh, any shipping supplying the Allied powers, Berlin decided that it would also try to enlist Mexico and Japan in a war against the United States. Uh, this was the famous uh, Zimmerman uh, telegram. Uh, the Zimmerman telegram was one that, yes, was transmitted across those same transatlantic cables, the ones that were controlled by the British. Uh, but they were encrypted um, in a code the Germans thought was unbreakable. But the British had succeeded in breaking the code. And by various and convoluted means, uh, they made the Americans understand uh, that they had taken possession of this message and discovered how it is that, yes, Germany was offering to help Mexico regain the territories of Texas and California if the United States, uh, if Mexico agreed to go to war with the U.S. Now, it wasn't long after uh, that Wilson finally obtained uh, not just a declaration of war from Congress, but also a law, the Espionage Act of 1917, a law like the one he'd called for, but even more than what he'd asked for. It was a law, one that not just uh, one that made it easier not just to prosecute espionage, but also to prosecute any speech that might lead to disloyalty or insubordination. At the same time, the United States began to develop, finally, a significant intelligence and counterintelligence apparatus. So the Office of Naval Intelligence grew from just 16 staff to 300. The Military Intelligence Division, uh, that is the Army Intelligence Operation, grew from those three attaches uh, to some 1,700 employees. And the Justice Department's Bureau of Investigation, the precursor of the FBI, grew from 300 relatively inexperienced agents to some 1,500. So they started to ramp up counterintelligence in the US, um, but they were never fully coordinated. They didn't share their files. More than that, it wasn't just an array of government agencies operating more or less independently. There were also some 350,000 badge-carrying citizen auxiliaries who had volunteered to join the American Defense Society and the National Security League. These, in many cases, vigilantes began to take matters in their own hands. And they began especially to target those members of the hyphen club, uh, especially those of German descent or in many cases, anyone who seems suspicious or foreign. The US government itself um, set about systematically targeting immigrant newspapers uh, for virtually the first time in American history, began systematically to intercept and read the mail and to ban many publications and censor many more of them. But of all the people convicted under the Espionage Act, more than 1,000 people convicted, not one of them was a spy. They'd all been convicted uh, under that third part of the Espionage Act, the part that punished uh, any dissenting speech that might lead to disloyalty or insubordination. These weren't state secrets. These were the secrets that citizens were meant to keep to themselves. The secret, or what was supposed to be, the secret of their own dissenting views. Now, I'll give you just a few examples of what happened at the time to get some sense of what happened to those institutions that seemed to be such robust um, uh, defenses 
of the autonomy of citizens in what was supposed to be a liberal democracy. So, for instance, the Los Angeles Board of Education decided to ban all talk of peace. In Nebraska, in Marysville, Nebraska, a mob broke into a school, removed all the books that had been written in German or about Germany, took them into the courtyard and burned them in a heap. In Milwaukee, a socialist editor uh, was denied a seat that he'd won in Congress because of accusations that he was un-American. My favorite, there are many dozens of examples, but I'll just end with this one. Beethoven was banned in Pittsburgh for the duration of the war. Now, part of this reaction to what came before, it was a reaction to the realization that the U.S. had been so open, so transparent, so vulnerable. And this was the kind of reaction, I think, uh, you can see with, with Wilson, and contrast, Wilson contrasting the things that he'd said before the war and the things that he said after. After all, this progressive president said in 1913 that government ought to be all outside and no inside. Everybody knows that corruption thrives in secret places and avoids public places, and we believe it a fair presumption that secrecy means impropriety. Now, here's what Wilson said after the war in 1919. Knowledge must be accumulated by a system which we have condemned because it is a spying system. The more polite call it a system of intelligence. You cannot watch other nations with your unassisted eye. You have to watch them with secret agencies planted everywhere. Now, in other, words, the US, in other words, the U.S., perhaps the world, could only be completely open and transparent if it began to eliminate some of those bad actors, and if it began to set up a whole league of nations that would collectively punish transgression. Now, of course, even with the defeat of Germany, there were other bad actors to punish and defeat. There were the Bolsheviks, above all. And what made the Bolsheviks so worrisome for Wilson and for many other Americans was the way in which they were able to organize and act in secret. And even after Wilson's rough and rapid education and intelligence, he was still amazingly naive in the way that he uh, learned about the Bolsheviks and and tried to deal with them. So, for instance, uh, he was presented with a set of documents that purported to show uh, how it is that Lenin and Trotsky were paid agents of Imperial Germany. He decided immediately, against the advice of his uh, closest aides, to publish these documents in the newspapers, only to discover later that they were all forgeries produced by intelligence agencies. Now, against the advice of his advisors, um, Wilson did much more. Um, But the Bolsheviks themselves um, were able to act and act along the same lines uh, that Wilson once pursued and pushing for more transparency and realizing the powerful reaction this could provoke uh, from the world community. So the Bolsheviks decided uh, that they would reveal the secrets that they had discovered in the foreign ministries of Imperial Russia. And Trotsky, in announcing them, said that the Russian people and the peoples of Europe and the whole world should learn the truth about the plans forged in secret by the financiers and the industrialists together with their parliamentary and diplomatic agents. The peoples of Europe have paid for the right to this truth with countless sacrifices and universal economic desolation. The workers and peasants' government abolishes secret diplomacy and its intrigues, codes, and lies. We have nothing to hide. Now, Wilson decided that he had to answer this. Um, Arno Mayer's uh, 
book about uh, the transition from the old diplomacy to the new, he nicely captures uh, this dialogue between uh, Trotsky and Lenin on the one hand and Wilson on the other. And the way that Wilson decided that to combat the appeal of Bolshevism, uh, he too had to call for more transparency. So the very first of his 14 points, those famous 14 points, called for open covenants openly arrived at. But this was hardly what Wilson himself practiced uh, when it came to negotiating the most important covenant of all, um, the treaty that would end uh, the First World War. Um, at the Versailles negotiations, um, they adopted measures of extraordinary secrecy. Harold Nicholson uh, later wrote about how he would watch uh, as the four, the big four, Wilson, Lloyd George, Clemenceau, and Orlando, uh, locked themselves into a room and had soldiers guarding the entrance. Virtually no information was given to the press, except the most anodyne communiques. The U.S. Army finally decided to secure communications uh, from Versailles um, in guarding the cables that would send Wilson's reports back to Washington. Now, these negotiations finally produced the treaty that Wilson would try and sell. And Wilson, to sell that treaty to the American public, warned that without the League of Nations, without joining the League, America would have to be like Prussia, that the U.S. would have to follow the path of Imperial Russia to become a military nation, to become a surveillance state. But in fact, in many ways, the U.S. was already a surveillance state. Uh, it was already launching um, operations, in some ways even more ambitious than those uh, that occurred during the war, like the Palmer Raids, uh, named for the Attorney General, in which many thousands of suspected communists and anarchists were rounded up, many hundreds of them deported. But after uh, the defeat of the Versailles Treaty, after the U.S. Uh, opted against joining the League of Nations, Wilson's night nightmare vision did not come to pass. Over time, there would be increasing revulsion against the excesses of the wartime period and the Red Scare that followed. Uh, this uh, was just one of those many excesses. Um, when, during the Palmer Raids, the Justice Department targeted the international workers of the world, as you can see, especially aimed at uh, disrupting them by destroying their files and their papers. Uh, but in the course of the years that followed, um, there was a growing consensus in the United States that free speech, the ability to speak and write, should be protected. It began with Oliver Wendell Holmes in a famous dissent on the Supreme Court uh, when he decided that whereas before he did not believe the First Amendment provided absolute protections for speech, he decided that he was wrong. And he decided that based not on visions of the future and some nightmare to come. Rather, it was because of what he'd learned about history. Holmes said that time has upset many fighting faiths, and only a free trade in ideas, not censorship, could ensure that good ideas would prevail. Even so, while there was a growing public consensus, at the same time, the U.S. government, or parts of it anyway, continued to try to build capacity, such as to make the U.S. more capable of acting in the world and acting as a great power. Uh, no one uh, was representative of this more than Herbert Hoover. Um, Herbert Hoover uh, became famous um, for his secrecy, but also because of his file keeping. Hoover, after all, had started uh, by working his way, uh, uh, while he was in school still, working at the Library of Congress. 
And he was famous for the techniques he developed to conduct large-scale surveillance operations without even his superiors becoming aware of it. Hoover, after all, with his files, created filing systems uh, that meant there was no official copy of many of the documents that he produced. He created do-not-file files uh, for things that he wanted uh, to be protected from anyone except his secretary. Um, now Hoover realized that he had to do these things because he had to act in secret. Because after all, after 1939, wiretapping was illegal in the United States. The Supreme Court had outlawed it. And he admitted, Hoover admitted, that it was repugnant to the American people, which is precisely why he had to do it with the, quote, utmost degree of secrecy, so as to avoid criticism. So paradoxically, this public consensus and this revulsion towards the excesses of World War I and the Palmer Raids and the Red Scare meant that those in the United States government who were determined to retain that capacity to act secretly and to keep those secrets, to organize them and com communicate them securely, it was for precisely that reason that they felt they had to do so uh, quietly. Now, Hoover was really very much an exception. Um, this was a more typical filing system for the U.S. government. <laughs> this is what happens when you put the State Department in charge of keeping your archives. Um, these are the War Department files in 1934. Right? This is why, you know, when the United States entered the Second World War, why it is they had to rely so completely on British intelligence um, just to begin to build a base of knowledge about German intelligence operations, for instance. Um, but things did begin to change. The reason why we have photos like this from 1934 is because the Works Project Administration undertook a survey of US government archives all across the United States. It was in that year, 1934, that the US National Archives were finally established. And it was Franklin Roosevelt himself, obsessed with archives, who insisted on it. It was that same year that the Federal Communications Commission was created. All of these were seemingly progressive measures, right? But all of them allowed the United States to gain the capability of acting in secret, collecting information, storing that information for the day it would need to retrieve it and use it. Now, the US intelligence community was still relatively feeble in the 1930s, but the one way it was strong was in signals intelligence. Why? Because more and more American companies decided to ignore the law and provide at least some of those intercepted communications from Japan and Germany and the Soviet Union. Now Roosevelt, like Wilson before him, once again felt and exclaimed, and I'm quoting, that we are so unprepared, we are completely unprepared to cope with this business of spying. So Roosevelt was the one who told Hoover to go ahead and keep tapping the wires, even when he knew it was illegal. Now, Otherwise, the U.S. was still a relatively weak actor in the world of intelligence. And it was uh, for reasons like this that the U.S. had to depend so much on its allies. But they did at last, uh, in the course of the Second World War, finally realize the power of information, um, the essential role of intelligence, and the need to create and enhance the technologies of storing information of organizing it so as to access it and use it. So in the Office of Strategic Services, which in many ways, in, in, for instance, in special operations was so laughable, was always very good at research and analysis. And the most powerful weapon in their arsenal, as Robin Winks, the Yale intelligence historian, would later remark, 
was the 3 by 5 index card. And it was for that reason that the Office of Strategic Services, the research and analysis part of it, operated where? Out of the National Archives. It was there that they decided to move their files and begin working in the course of World War II, working right through to the end of it um, when they began to um, form the nucleus of the Central Intelligence Agency. The State Department itself became far more capable uh, in the course of the war. Uh, it expanded uh, threefold between 1940 and 42, just in terms of the size of its apparatus. Whereas in, 19, in 1882, rather, it handled some 50,000 50, communications a year. By 1941, it was handling more than a million pieces of correspondence a year, filing in them in that same central office file uh, that Haswell had, had created uh, some 70 years earlier. So this is how the United States began to accumulate that vast store of secrets, what eventually by the end of the war amounted to 100 million cubic feet of classified paper. Um, I'll just leave you with one uh, of these pieces of paper. Um, this one is actually not classified. It's a wartime document. Um, it's one that was addressed um, to the broadest possible audience, um, that is, to the mothers, the wives, the fathers, the brothers, the sisters, and friends of servicemen. And it was a personal message that was meant to be uh, distributed, especially by those officers specifically charged with uh, providing public information about the need for operational security as the U.S. fought to defeat Germany and Japan in the course of World War II. It was a message you know, delivered personally uh, by the chief of staff of the U.S. Army, George Marshall, and by his counterpart in the Navy, uh, Admiral Ernest J. King. Now, what is it that Marshall and King wanted every American to read and to understand? What they wanted them to do was to think of the future, uh, just six weeks away. They said, just before dawn, six weeks from today, the United States uh, war and troop ships will slide over the horizon unseen and approach a certain enemy island. As dawn breaks, our warships will begin an intense bombardment while our troops race for the shore in invasion barges. And he went on, the two of them went on to describe how it is the United States would carry out the successful amphibious assault of some enemy-occupied island. But, they said, you know, what if, what if instead some people started talking about some things, seemingly innocuous things? Last night, for instance, in a restaurant, this is the third paragraph, a friend of a friend of a soldier said to her girlfriend, Helen found out why Earl hasn't written lately. He's all right. It's just that his, hands, his arm's been swollen from inoculations. Don't know why he got him, though. He was inoculated before when he first joined the paratroops. And then they go on to write about how, in a lot of other places, a lot of other people, as Americans always have, talked about their jobs, their friends, and what they were doing. And they go on to describe how it is these seemingly innocuous bits of information about inoculations, the kind of work that people are doing in munitions plants, and what have you. All of these can be put together by spies, spies who might seemingly be everywhere. So this, this was the uh, fate of open government in the age of total war. This was the idea that everyone, every member of society in some way was part of the government, or at least part of the national security state, in the sense that they, all of them had to protect the state secrets. And the state secrets were everyone's secrets. And if they didn't protect these secrets, then the entire nation was at risk. Um, so this is where I'll, I'll leave you on that happy note. Um, and then we'll, we can uh, take it up again in uh, January to talk about uh, the atomic bomb and the Cold War and more fun stuff like that. <laughs> so, over to you, Arnie.
Well, Matt, I thought this was more than instructive enough. I mean, not everything has to be connected to the Cold War, as you know. Um, and I think the particular time period that you're dealing with here uh, may indeed, in terms of our own day and age, has as much of a relevance in terms of reflecting on these issues today than, than what the Cold War has to some extent. Let me, let me, I found this absolutely fascinating. Let me start with a, with a very broad question, then you can answer it whatever way you would like. And that's about this broader connection that's now coming out from both of your first lectures between um, intelligence, intelligence gathering, secrecy, and the suppression of, of civil liberties. Because one of the things I was thinking about as, as you were discussing particularly the situation towards the end of and in the wake of the First World War, the Palmer raids, uh, etc., but also official thinking at that time, is that it seems to me that it dawned on the Wilson administration just at the same time that it started becoming seriously preoccupied with foreign intelligence, that, in effect, this was something that others had been undertaking, rightly or wrongly, against them for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. And therefore, one would have to look into issues of subversion, mm-hmm. uh, issues that have to do with uh, whether people, both in society in general and in high places, were, were, were loyal to the state. Do you think... That is a necessary connection. Do you think that is something that you see in a lot of different cases, that you have this uh, triangle, as it were, between Mm -hmm. intelligence, secrecy, and the suppression of civil liberties? Yeah, well, uh, if by suppression of civil liberties, I mean, part of it anyway is is gathering information about people without their knowledge, um, there's a very clear connection, because um, especially in a democracy, or it's meant to be a democracy, uh, if you can reduce the risks of exposure, that is the sources and methods that you use in gaining intelligence, um, then you increase um, the relative value you know, to, uh, to government. Mm. Um, because after all, you know, the uh, surveillance operations of the NSA, for instance, were of much greater value um, to the U.S. government, relatively speaking, relative to other things that could have expended political capital on, um, as long as people weren't completely aware of it. Mm. Um, not only because of uh, the protests that ensued, but also because of the fact that once people understood it, then they could uh, act to try to avoid that kind of surveillance or even to subvert it. Um, so, yeah, there, there is a, uh, a clear connection between intelligence gathering and especially surveillance of citizenry um, and the need to protect the kinds of sources and methods that one uses. And then there's another and further relationship that is a very, you know, real interest, perhaps mainly to historians, but I think it should matter to other people. When, it, when I started doing research on what we could discover by data mining declassified documents, one of the first things I, I realized uh, was that it was precisely those um, files related to surveillance that were the ones um, that were most likely to contain uh, what's called personal identifiable inter- information, or PII. Um, and PII, along with um, uh, national security information, is one of the two main uh, reasons why it is the government can withhold information. And many of us would think that's completely uh, necessary and, and legitimate. Why? Because you know, we don't want the government disclosing private information about us. But what if it's the case that surveillance operations, by their very nature, 
are going to um, lead to the uh, collection of enormous stores of private information. And what if our concern for privacy is going to uh, make it impossible for us ever to understand the, the scope and nature of those programs? Right? So, so here is another and kind of less direct you know, connection between uh, the kinds of surveillance and intelligence gathering the state undertakes and the ways in which it can uh, subvert um, civil liberties or at least um, personal privacy and continue doing it in the most paradoxical fashion for decades after the fact. But maybe that's not the way you were thinking. No, no, that is, that is uh, yeah. extremely useful. I mean, scary, but, but useful. <laughs> <laughs> Let us open up uh, for, for questions from the audience. I'm going to take two, two and two. Well, I have a question for the audience, if I could you, I mean, abuse you know, my Since we are in the, in, the, in the age of subversion here, let's, let's try to turn it around. What would you well, like to well, ask Well, I'm very curious. Like, let's say, for instance, that there is a research project underway you know, that uh, is, is aimed at trying to understand at least uh, the broad you know, outlines of official secrecy, even if we can't um, discover every secret in all its particulars, even if we wanted to we might at least be able to make out broader patterns. But to do that, we would have to have more access to more uh, information that came from state surveillance programs, right? So at what point you know, should historians you know, be allowed um, to see the, uh, the bitter fruit <laughs> of, uh, of state surveillance files, right? Even if it means you know, reading in the, the information of, uh, of private citizens. Um, should there be you know, some uh, kind of 30 or 60 or 100-year rule um, to access that kind of information? What do you think? Yeah. You just wait for the mic. Sure. Go ahead. Hi. My first thoughts on like that would be, would it be similar to what medical research wants to do now, getting access to everyone's personal medical information to do mass data mining on that, uh-huh. where... It's a big question of personal identifiable information. Mm-hmm. And the only way, well, the main way they're thinking about doing it at the moment is trying to strip out some of the names. Mm-hmm. So change a name to marker, would right. that be a path which might be taken? Yeah, so you could anonymize the information, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that would be one way of doing it. One, one issue with that, though, is um, uh, you know, this is something that journalists, I talked to Steve Call uh, not long ago about this. You know, he's the dean of the Columbia Journalism School, and he says that a lot of journalists are really um, uh, worried about the fact that it's very hard for them to document the human consequences of state surveillance. Mm-hmm. Right, it's hard to like, and you know, until like scandals uh, erupt, where we have, where we can put a, you know, a name and a face, you know, to the story of state surveillance. It's really hard to kind of dramatize that and and reveal what the real consequences could be for individual people. Um, so if, if you anonymize all of that kind of information, you continue doing it many decades after the fact. It could make it more difficult. Um, to kind of make that story vivid in a way that people would want to listen to. Like when you listen to lectures like this, you know, aren't you more interested in, in kind of the individuals, the personalities? Uh, at least that has to be part of it, right? There has to be that human element. And if we can never capture the individual people who are caught up in you know, the web of state surveillance, it makes it harder for us you know, to do what we were supposed to do as historians. Others? Okay. Yes, gentlemen over there in blue. Yeah, yeah just use the mic. Please. I have a counter question then. At what point, um, if the information is released, um, a secret information is released into the society, at what point 
will the society, you know, go out on the streets and, and protest? Because, you know, Mr. Snowden is revealing so much of the information and yes, it's in the Financial Times today. Mm. Tomorrow, um, well, I don't care anymore because there is a new merger between, uh, I don't know, BT and Vodafone and, mm. and nothing happens. So, yes, we have a lot of information, but, you know, it's like in Hawksley's uh, Brave New World. Nobody cares about this information. It's just, um, you know, in the sea. Um, it's just lost. Uh, what do you think? Is there a point at which um, the society will rebel or there is no, uh, there is no limit? Well, you know, that's actually what happens uh, or what is happening now to a lot of the, the personally identifiable information that the government collects. They get rid of it all. Um, because, you know, when archivists, you know, understaffed and underfunded have to make decisions about what files, what papers they're going to review, process, and eventually make available to the public, once they realize that a, a particular, you know, not even just an individual document, sometimes they'll just sample, you know, large collections. Once they decide that a whole record group has a lot of PII, personally identifiable information, in many cases they decide, well, that's one we're not going to look at. We're just going to have to get rid of it all. Um, so that's what's now happening, you know, with a lot of the uh, official documents um, that contain a lot of personal information. And the same is true, by the way, uh, uh, private companies. And so if you talk to, um, you know, as much as we think, oh, you know, Google is like trying to gather all this information and bulk collection and uh, it's this kind of privatized NSA and they're selling that and trying to find other ways to profit from it. Well, the fact is, yes, they're doing all that. Um, but these companies gather vastly more information than they want or need. Uh, and they also realize that there's reputational risk uh, for the, lo the longer that they hold on to this information. Um, and so they, too, you know, would like to get rid of it as quickly as they profitably can. Um, so when, if that's what we're talking about, when will people, like, begin to say, you know, actually, we have a stake in this, too? Um, you know, there are many who are arguing that we're entering, if we're not already in, a kind of digital dark age where we may think that we're living in the information age when there's just ubiquitous information. We're producing more of it all the time. In terms of what's actually going to be preserved and recoverable and accessible either to historians or your own grandchildren, like your word-perfect documents from 1998, you know, it may be vanishingly small. And it's certainly not going to be a representative sample, you know, of all the information that you're producing and that other people are collecting. So when will people, like, wake up and do something about it? Why not right now? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's one of the reasons why I'm talking about this stuff, you know, is because I'm hoping it'll get people upset so that they'll want to do something. Ah, what do we do? I, well, I think, you know, there's easy things to do and then there are harder things to do. Um, uh, seemingly easy if it's only about money. But, I mean, for instance, uh, the, the British National Archives, like the U.S. National Archives, is increasingly inadequate to the task. You know, and so, you know, recently it was revealed that 
um, there were vast collections that had never been reviewed or processed, even though by law they're meant to be, right, under the 30-year uh, the rule, what's now the 20-year the rule. Um, and many you know, uh, reporters in, in writing about it, I think, assumed they might even be right, you know, that there is some reason why these particular files you know, were never reviewed. What I think uh, is more likely the case, and certainly the case in the U.S., is the more banal fact you know, that they are just completely understaffed and underfunded. So the relatively easy thing to do about this kind of problem would be to start with um, to begin to provide the uh, resources for archivists and librarians commensurate with the scale of the challenge, right? Um, so that would be a relatively easy thing to do. A harder thing to do would be, um, you know, to think harder you know, about um, our own patrimony. You know, the, um, the fact that, you know, as individuals, most of us, including me, I was joking about my password earlier, but we just give away all this information, right, for others to profit from um, with little thought or concern about what ends up happening with all that information, right? And so um, I, I think that we ought to try to renegotiate the terms or at least read the terms that we're agreeing to <laughs> when we sign these, you know, uh, innumerable forms, you know, as to what it is that we're allowing other people to do with our data are the ways we're allowing other people to get rid of our data. Um, so, so I think there, there are things that could be done. Some of them are hard uh, and some of them are easy, but there's a lot to be done, and, and I'm just hoping more people will get to it. So, mm -hmm. yeah. I have a question with regard to information overload on the other side, as it were, on the, on the government side, and the ability to process information, if we stick to the time period that you are you were dealing with here. Um, I remember when I started working in the uh, Soviet archives, the post-Soviet archives as they were, when they started to open up in the 1990s, one of the things that really struck me was how much information that had been gathered. I mean, this is not mainly intelligence. This is, this is diplomatic information, all kinds of information coming through uh, TASS, through news agency, through various, uh, various information outlets. And what was quite obvious was that there hadn't been on the side of the Soviet government, the ability to process all of this. And much of it has, had never really been used in any meaningful form. Yeah. Now, obviously, and we'll get to this in your later lectures, this has changed to some extent through technology. But for the period that you're talking about here, for instance, this massive expansion of U.S. intelligence gathering during the Second World War, to what extent was this a serious challenge? And, and to what extent did it also impinge on, on, on policy? Yeah. Well, um yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, you, you know, it's estimated that eventually the FBI had files on 500,000 individuals, right? Like, who is reading all that? I mean, one reason they, they kept those files was, you know, for, um, you know, those national emergencies, right, when they wanted to know who to round up. I mean, that's why Hoover started doing it, and he kept doing it even when he was told not to, right? He was gathering up that information, not because they were necessarily going to do much about it in the near term, but it was for that moment when, you know, they would need to start rounding people up and putting them in camps. Um, so Hoover was ready, right? The FBI was ready. Um, and if history turned out differently, we might have seen the uses to which they would have put those 500,000 files, right? Um, so... Um, you, you know, to answer that question, it, it's, it's um, still, I think, um, you know, one of the great challenges and bigger all the time because if all we have is a tiny fraction of what was collected, 
then it's really hard to know kind of what, what was done with it. And when it comes to, like, for instance, the CIA, which, you know, wasn't even born yet when, a, I'm, when I'm uh, talking about this period, um, you know, the, the CIA, when they uh, undertake what they call automatic declassification, they only release 11 percent of their files. And that excludes all of the um, files to do with... Um, uh, with clandestine operations, right? So we're only talking about the kind of the more seemingly innocuous research and analysis kinds of files. Um, so in, the, in this case, we only have 11% of like what the CIA did with research and analysis. And we have no idea you know, what sources and methods they had access to. Then how can we ever know, you know kind of what it is that they collected and, and, um, and, and how they, they used it? Right, so so I'm I'm afraid that you know that is like one of those imponderables. <laughs> we can ponder it perhaps, but it's hard to know what to do beyond that. Yeah, this question back then. Hi, thank you. It's just recently come to light that Hoover, uh, Edgar Hoover, had uh, information on uh, Martin Luther King, and was promoted uh, with promote, promoting the idea that he should commit suicide with that information he, that he had on him, right. which we must assume then that if he was to use that against him, that there must be many other cases where it's actually happened and worked. Right. How, what is your view on that such extreme, unhanded use of information? Yeah. Well, that, that's what I was actually, I was thinking of those that kinds of cases where we're talking about what use could be made of it. So there are certain cases that we learned about eventually, right, uh, where they actually use these kinds of files. In some cases, you know, one reason why, you know, Hoover was such a fanatic, and eventually many others became fanatical as well, uh, in gathering up these files and, and keeping them in, in an order in which they could retrieve the information, was because that in many cases you didn't know the value of that information, you know, initially. And it was only much later you would find out, you know, that this person that you'd been uh, reading reports about turned out to be the kind of figure, the, precisely the kind of person you wanted to blackmail. Um, so, yeah, there are notorious cases like Martin Luther King, but I think there are probably many more cases that we've never heard about and never will hear about. But one thing I could tell you is that by 1936, uh, apparently um, there are justices of the Supreme Court that thought Hoover was already uh, bugging uh, Supreme Court chambers. <laughs> So, I mean, when you think about, like, who is ultimately, like, kind of sovereign in the United States, we think it's the Constitution, but it's really what the Supreme Court, you know, says the Constitution says, that sets limits to what the rest of the government does or can do. Um, and in this case, you know, seemingly even Supreme Court justices were at least worried, if not intimidated, uh, about the information that, that Hoover was gathering about them. Um, so that, that's why, you know, I, I talk so much about kind of sovereignty because it's really kind of a puzzle, but it's really a useful way of, of thinking about kind of the nature of secrecy, how it creates this kind of unaccountable power, even if it, it can be hard to answer the many questions that arise from, from pondering that. Well, that sets us up quite nicely, I think, for the next installment of these lectures, which will be in, in Lent term, where we will develop this up to, um, up to today and look at uh, different ways in which the discussions, the debates about freedom of information and um, official secrecy have developed. I want to thank you, Matt, for a wonderful lecture tonight. Thank you, Arne. Um, looking forward to it.